A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Welcome back to Cocoons of Horror. It's not quite season three yet. This is an off-season, one-off podcast. I'm covering today David Lowry's 2021 film, The Green Knight, with Knight Specialist Carol Parrish Jameson. Just a word about Carol. She is one of the world's foremost experts on knights and knightly codes. She teaches medieval literature, among other things, at Georgia Southern University. And she teaches classes specifically on the original text of The Green Knight. So there's no one better to help me cover this film than Carol Parrish Jameson. This is a commission podcast from a fellow named Joshua, and he was really interested in us covering one of his favorite movies, which quickly became one of my favorite movies. Comic Steve Osborne will be back soon to help me launch season three of Cocoons of Horror. For now, enjoy Carol and I talking about the green night. Carol, this was a podcast suggestion by a listener named Joshua. And he was so excited about the possibility of covering this particular movie that he decided that he wanted to commission a podcast. And I've never done this before. So in addition to our conversation, I also have a list of questions from Joshua. Okay, um, this, this is wonderful. Thank you to Joshua for this great idea. But I, I want to start out with one of my questions. And, and of okay. course, you are my go-to expert on knights and knighthood. And so I want to start with a question about knighthood. Here it is. What makes a knight? Because I think that this film has a few different answers to that question. And one of the, one answers might be like a, a good story makes a night or greatness makes a night or love makes a night or honor makes a night. And so I wonder if you might answer that question more generally <laughs> before we get into sort of the answers that the movie provides. Sure. Um, particularly in portrayals of chivalric romance, um, it's the chivalric code that makes a knight. And that consists of aspects uh, such as um, courtesy, um, you know, behavior at court, impeccable manners, uh, loyalty, um, mm. generosity, prowess, of course, bloodline. And, um, and honor is extremely important to... Um, to being a knight, to being a right. knight of any merit or worth. And, and I think in this film that that becomes a prominent theme. Right. So that's interesting. And you mentioned prowess, right? So mm -hmm. I think that that's maybe how we start this. I mean, I guess we could start with a number of different things. But one of the ways that we start 
one of the opening scenes of this is this Christmas setting where King Arthur wants to hear a tale. You know, he, he's asking the court, you know, tell me a story. I want to hear a story of your greatness. And I think in the original text, I think it's like, I want to hear a story and we're not going to eat until, <laughs> until I get a good story. Yeah, here. yeah. This is a tradition of Arthur's uh, in the Arthurian romance that he won't eat until uh, a story or a marvel, you know, until something happens. Yes. And in the original, you know, Arthur is young. He's not old. And the, um, the original poet describes him as childeret, which is childish or childlike. And there might be some subtle criticism ah. of, the, of this tradition because everyone is sitting there. They're at the table. They're ready yeah. to eat. And then, no, you can't eat until Arthur has a story or a marvel. Yeah. So it's almost like <laughs> I want to hear a story of some great tale. And if I mm -hmm. can't hear a story... You guys better do something. Right. Or you, you know, can't eat. You can't eat. <laughs> so you, right. We can't cut the turkey until there's some kind exactly. of story. Exactly. And it's like, if <laughs> if I don't hear a story, I want to hear, I want to see something great that mm -hmm. will become a story eventually. And right. I think that the idea here is that prowess is sort of fundamental to, I guess, the aspirations of the main character here. Yes. And I, so maybe that's the first. And, I, you know, we hear that a couple of times. He's got to decide whether he's going to, you know, play the game with the Green Knight. He's got to decide whether what he's going to do. He's got a year to, like, steal his courage, mm -hmm. you know, decide what he's going to do. And, you know, his main love interest, Essel, basically says, why, why greatness? Why isn't mm -hmm. goodness enough? And I think that that's kind of... It become it kind of fades into the woodwork eventually. It becomes more of a story about gift giving and honor and you know being trustworthy and things mm -hmm. like that. But the initial question is, is this guy going to choose a life of a knight or is he just going to continue to be a hedonist? Right. Yeah. When, you know, when he's first challenged by the Green Knight, I think he expects a more traditional kind of battle, a more um, yeah. traditional kind of way to prove his prowess, because he says, I don't have the sword, I need a sword. And so yeah. Arthur hands him the sword. And then this other guy has an axe. And that's not the conventional way that you uh, that you establish your prowess. So he's thrown off from from the beginning uh. as to how he's going to um, to establish himself and what route he's going to choose, because this initial uh, encounter isn't what he expected at all. And then, of, of course, you know, he decides he's going to, it's sort of like a, a pressure situation. Like, he knows mm -hmm. he, you know, Arthur asked him for a story. I think in the original story, Arthur asked the entire court for a, mm -hmm. you know. in this In this film, he specifically directs this question to, how do we say this guy's name? Gawain? 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 I, I hear it pronounced various ways. I've always called him Gowan. Okay, we'll call him Gowan. Gowan knows, and he's he's forthright about it. He says, I, I have none. I have no story. And then he's given an opportunity to do something heroic, and he takes it. Oh, greatest of kings, indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. Let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth. Take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me. Whomsoever nicks me shall lay claim to this my arm. Its glory and riches shall be thine. But thy champ must bind himself to this. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence he must seek me out yonder to the green chapel. Six nights to the north, he shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return, be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat. I will return what was given to me, and then in trust and friendship we shall part. Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? So it's almost like the first test that he has to pass is, are you going to choose a life of greatness or not? Right. And then he kind of chooses it, but then he kind of like hems and haws about it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I think in in that uh, in that intervening year, I don't know how much he's thinking about it or whether it's nagging him in the back of his mind. But um, but when the year rolls around, he he kind of hems and hedges a little bit. Like, oh, is this is mm-hmm. this contender really really waiting there for me? Is this you know something that's really serious? So whenever I'm looking at a movie, I really am interested in the sort of the first scene. How does it begin? Mm-hmm. And I think that we've already kind of hinted in this direction, but this particular movie is a version of a story. And I almost wonder if the opening scene kind of tells us what we need to know about how faithful this particular telling is going to be to the original text. Mm-hmm. Because you're kind of seeing a, a very, very loose paraphrase of one of the verses and you know the opening pages. Look, see a world that holds more wonders than any since the earth was born. And of all who reigned all, none had renown like the boy who pulled sword from stone. But this is not that game. There's a couple lines and a few illusions. Mm-hmm. But what you're seeing on the screen is a king that is burning. Right. Yeah. And I almost kind of read that, and I'll get your opinion on this. I almost kind of read that as, hey, you might have heard this story before. We're going to tell you a new story. We almost need to burn down your previous ideas before you can really enjoy this new story we're going to tell almost giving themselves something of a carte blanche to do whatever they want to with the film right and so i i want to know like if number one do you think that that's kind of what they're doing and then the secondly is what were the more intriguing departures from the original text that you saw yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because in those opening, you know, that that opening scene, the um, the language parallels the text a little bit. I'll lay it down as I've heard it told in letters sent. It even kind of alliterates like the original. Yeah. And seems like we're going to be very faithful here in yeah. uh, in this you know revision of the work. But yeah, the Burning King. Um, I also took it. It says that this tale is not about that king, but another. And then it fo- turns the focus to to Gawain rather than to Arthur. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. That was a very curious image to me, though, of the burning uh, the burning king at the um, at mm. the beginning of the text or the beginning of the film. Sorry, that's right, that's right. And then there are a few notable departures during the film. There are, yes, yeah. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you could just like are there are there a couple okay. that maybe you find like really intriguing or. Yeah. Sure. Curious. Yeah. Um, Well, one of the biggest ones is that the court is old, um, whereas in the original, the court is young. There is yet untested. Um, So here the court is old. Um, um, Gawain is not yet a knight, whereas he is already a knight um, in the original. Um, Let's see. What else? Um, Gawain himself, I think this is a very different hero that we have in the film. Um, in the original text, um, he's a talker, and Dev Patel plays this very, uh, this very quiet uh, oh, Gawain. You're right, I hadn't really thought about your your. <laughs> it's all about it's so so much about language in the original. As first of all, in the original, Arthur accepts the challenge, and you can't have that. You can't have your king accepting this suicidal challenge, and so Gawain uses his skill at speech. He uses his words yeah. to get our uh, to get Arthur off the hook and then the scenes you know with the lady the temptation is really all about how Gowan is using language to turn her away without offending her and when he arrives at that (laughs) court (laughs) it's very tricky they all say you know oh you are Gowan that knows so much of the language of love Mm. so to me this this very I think Dev Patel does an amazing job I think he's a wonderful Gowan but it's a very different character in that he's so uh so quiet He's quiet and he's also somewhat ambiguous. Like you almost, Mm -hmm. because he doesn't use his speech as much, it's almost like you have to kind of use your own imagination to really probe into his emotions and his motives. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's almost like 
he's a little bit less sure of himself this this Gowan he is like. yeah and again because he's um he's not a knight yet in this one and he you know he lacks ah. that ex- that experience that the original um right. Gowan has yeah he's already you know pretty well established in the original that's fascinating I have others as well if yeah, you let's, yeah let's, let's talk about those because I think <laughs> but, that people that are listening to this mm-hmm. might have okay. seen the movie and may not have read the, you know the original yeah yeah um so Gowan is different. The court is different. Uh, there are some significant differences in the Green Knight as well. So in the uh, in the original text, when he enters the court, he's carrying it says a holly bob in one hand and an axe in the other. Mm. And in the film, he has you know he has the branch, the holly bob. Um, but in the uh, in the original, he sends out really ambiguous uh, signals. It's as if someone is like flashing you a peace sign in one hand and has you know a, a gun in the other mm. <laughs> they, oh. they don't know <laughs> they don't know what to make the court is unsettled by those mixed messages um i think the the uh, green knight in the film is more um i think he comes across more combative he's wearing it looked to me like he was wearing armor um in the original he isn't and that's another thing they don't know what to um to make of him um, I love the way, though, that they have him looking sort of like the the wild man of the woods. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. I think that physical portrayal was uh, was um, really good uh, in the film. But I do think it departs a bit from what we get in the original, where he's not. He's still he's human. In fact, it's, he's not even a giant. It says he's like the largest of men. He's just green. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 otherworldly enough to be green. Mm-hmm. I do think that the, the way that he's depicted, the, the knight is depicted in this film kind of plays into the nature versus, I guess, in the interior world of Christianity mm-hmm. versus sort of the the outer world of paganism or something like that. Yeah, which is a major theme. Yeah. Okay, major well, I, I want to get to that because yeah. that's, that's yeah. fascinating <laughs> to me. Let me throw this idea at you and we'll I'll see, I'll see what you think. So one way you could look at this film is that it's a story about giving and receiving. Um, it's like that the old, the old concept, like you know, you reap what you sow. Mm-hmm. And in this story, the knight gets to see his life, or at least a version of his life, what it would look like without honor. Right. So it's almost like he's given the opportunity to, to envision a life where he makes the wrong choice and he chooses the path path of dishonor or something like that. And in that version, like he deals inequitably with his host and the green Knight and with Essel and probably deals inequitably with the entire kingdom. I think when, you know, Mm -hmm. at one point he envisions himself as King, but his subjects hate him. They do. And it thing, it's as if things are crumbling around him and he's, yes. you see him strategizing um, at a table as if they've gone to war. So, yeah, it seems like right. it's an unsuccessful reign, to be sure. So, But, of course, one way to view that is like he gets to see it and so then he can make the right decision because he gets to choose to do something else. And I wonder if – I wonder how much of that is part of the filmmaker's imagination or how much of that is – drawing from a theme in the original text i think that i think it draws heavily from a theme in the original text so it certainly plays out really differently um in the end um of the uh, original of course gowan goes back home he returns mm-hmm. home he's with the with the sash which he's wearing now um across his shoulder like a baldric visible uh invisible mm-hmm. and he wears it he's ashamed he feels like a failure and he goes back to Arthur's court um, feeling like a failure. And he, you know, he confesses and it, you know, I think the original says he's blushing as he tells, he saw himself as a representative of the court who failed, you know, mm. by accepting the green sash. But then it, it's an odd ending in the original text. I think almost as ambiguous as in the film because um, Arthur's court doesn't seem to get the shame. Oh, they're glad to see him. And so they all, you know, we'll all put on a green sash. And on the one hand, that could be sharing the shame. Sure. On the other hand, everywhere he looks, he's going to see the shame. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think, so is, do you think that that text is meant to be 
ambiguous like we want the reader to decide what what he should have done or what he could have done differently or something like that or do you think that the, it you think that the story is just like we we're, we're going to tell you a, a a fun adventure and we'll see how much you enjoy it or not you know <laughs> I think the former. Uh, for one thing, the, this poet, he's known as the Pearl Poet. Um, the other four works that we, or three works that we believe were written by him are serious and, um, and, and religious in theme. Ah. Um, so I think, I think he wants to leave the audience, um, you know, thinking and thinking about mm. shame and honor. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you my burning question that I've been dying to <laughs> ask you. The setting is Christmas. You hear church bells. You know you have you know mass being attended, and you do. I, I, I've always kind of assumed that King Arthur's court has at least some kind of Christian, I don't know, ethos to it. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's a, a a very strong paganism as well in this movie. Uh, I, I think his. I think Gowan's mother is supposed to be something of a i don't want to use the word witch but she absolutely does mm -hmm. exhibit a lot of witch qualities and then there's the, the question is do you believe in magic which is also called witchcraft and then you've got the mm -hmm. five-pointed star and so i wonder i've got a few ideas about this but i wonder what you make of all of that Oh, I have several things to say about that. And in, in case I forget, make, make sure that we talk about the identity of his mother at some point, because yes, that's so absolutely. curious. Um, but as far as those Christian and, and pagan images, by the time Arthurian literature began to be written down, you know, it was by Christians. And so you do, you have this kind of, uh, this kind of a blend. Um, in this narrative, though, I think part of Gawain's um, struggle is that he's conflicted between the Christian and the magic. So his shield, which plays a prominent part in both, um, well, really more in the uh, the original, but it also appears in the film. It has the five pointed star, but that was a Christian symbol in medieval England. It was okay. the um, yeah. So that uh, had Christian meanings in the original. It's interpreted in completely Christian um, uh, terminology. It represents the um, the five fives and one of those, the five wounds of Christ, the five joys of heaven, chivalric virtues are kind mm. of thrown in there. And then on the back of his shield is an image of the Virgin Mary. Um, okay. Uh, and so when he's fighting, this is, this is, um, you know, Gawain is kind of conventionally a ladies' man, but not not the Gawain of this poem. In this poem, this is a very Christian Gawain. As he's fighting, he's looking at this image of Mary. And on the front of the shield, what he represents is this symbol of perfection. Okay. Um, yeah, religious chivalric perfection. So that's what he has to look to live up to. So say more about the five, the the, the symbolism of the number five here. You know, the original text, the way that it's worded, I've always found confusing, <laughs> but there are five points and each of those points stands for a different aspect of chivalry. This And this is, I think, very much um, Christian chivalry that this okay. poet is putting forth. So one of them is the five senses, which I think just has to do with um, maybe with prowess a bit. Hmm. Um, the five fingers. And then the next two are, are specifically Christian, the five wounds of Christ, um, you know, through oh. the side and then the feet and the hands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the five joys of heaven. Okay. And then the, the fifth five, they, uh, uh, they just kind of, they call it uh, beneficence, uh, generosity, compassion. It seems more secular, that fifth point. Okay. But all taken together, it's the emblem of a perfect night that Gawain is supposed to live up to. Right. Okay. So, it, so it's a symbol of perfection, meaning that all of these virtues that you would expect of a Christian knight, mm -hmm. that's, that's what's on the front of his shield. Right. And on the back of his shield, you said, is an image of the Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. And how do we, I mean, I guess you could easily say, well, that's just sort of like a symbol of, of Christianity as well. But I, th there's a certain, there's definitely a mother virgin mm -hmm. paradox in this story as well. Yes. Yeah. When, you know, when he's being tempted by um, by the lady of the castle in the original text, he calls, you know, there are references to Mary, like may Mary protect her knight in this dilemma. Uh -huh. 
which is, you know, really interesting how that kind of parallels in the film with uh, the figure of his of the other mother figure, yeah. his mother. Yeah, in the text, um, it's his aunt who's who's behind all the machinations of right. the Green Knight. So let's go ahead and we will talk about the the women in this story. I'm really interested in the women, but before we move on from the star, so I think yes, the five pointed star seems to have been a Christian image in the world, in the medieval world. But in this story, mm-hmm. it seems like they're playing up the five pointed star as sort of a symbol of the pagan world as well. Um, because I think that there's, some, there, I think on the lips of his mother at one point, she like mentions the five, the, you know, I don't know what she says. She, she uses the number five a couple times. So I, and, and clearly there is some kind of connection between the mother. It seems to me sending an invitation to the green Knight, mm-hmm. or writing the rules of the game or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And it burns up by magic and as soon as that letter burns up the knight walks in to the court mm-hmm. and so it's almost as if Gowan's mother is the person who uses magic to invite the green knight to court mm-hmm. yeah and i i wonder if there's more to be said about that i I'm a, i was a little bit confused there yeah what what i saw in the film maybe and you know you, the images kind of go by so fast but yeah. what i saw during the scene where she was conjuring i saw the shield being blessed by maybe a priest Mm. So I so I kept the shield in the realm of Christianity, and then and I think it was the I th- I thought it was Guinevere, the queen, who was talking about the five virtues. Maybe that's it. Yeah. And meanwhile, we have the mother who's conjuring and creating the sash, which to me was the pagan image. And oh. what happens in the original is that when uh, Gawain finally faces the Green Knight, he's still got the pentangle, but the, the poem now emphasizes not that shield, which was which they emphasize and describe so much before, you know, he sets out, but the, now his, he's putting his faith in the sash, in the pagan over the Christian. Okay, so now I, this, this is kind of making more sense now with the sash. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so that, that's a good way into talking about the, the, the female characters of this story. The sash allows Gowan to, I don't know, it's sort of like Dumbo's magic feather. <laughs> it is, yeah. And that it sort of gives him the courage. Like, you mm-hmm. know, his mother says, wear this, nothing's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Then he gets it stolen, right? He, yes, he, he does. Up, he gets it stolen by the scavenger. Mm-hmm. And then the sash is given to him again by the lady of the castle. Mm-hmm who is clearly a romantic connection for him. Uh, I, I think that there's, I think that there's some kind of trickery that's happening in that, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't actually consummate. So he can kind of get out of feeling too ashamed by the encounter. Yeah. So it's more of a sexual encounter than in the original where he, yeah, he, he remains more chaste. Right. It's sort of like <laughs> a, a kiss, a kiss on the cheek or something. Right. Like yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so anyway, there, from that view, you could easily view the mother and the love interest or the lady of the castle are the same person. And then, of course, then the question is, all right, if, if those are the same people, why does the lady of the castle, why is she portrayed by the exact same actress as Essel, you know, mm-hmm. the girl yeah. back in his village? And it's almost as if the women in this story are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that part. Of yeah, it. I think that echoes the original text as well, where the lady of the castle, when um, when Gawain first sees her, he noted he notes how gorgeous she is. She's more beautiful than Guinevere, and anyone who's more beautiful than Guinevere is going to be trouble in the world of romance. <laughs> and then beside her okay. is this uh, is this crone. And and there have been some some uh, scholars who conflate them and say that that maybe they're one and the same. I've mm. never seen it that way because they're they're separate. Um, but nonetheless, it's clearly this this crone who he later learns is his aunt Morgan Lefay, who's behind everything. 
um, at the very end, um, oh, the Green Knight says, you know, it, it, it's never really resolved why, but, uh, but he says it was, you know, your aunt who, um, who, you know, conjured, who made me green and sent me to the court. The reasons are a little bit um, confusing. I think that the poet just had to wrap things up somehow with all these different storylines. <laughs> um, one, uh, it was to scare Guinevere to death. It was to test Arthur's mm-hmm. court. And then the Lord of the Castle, you know, the Green Knight also tells Gawain that um, my wife did this to test you, to oh. test, you know, your virtue. So it's it's ambiguous in the original. Um, I Again, I've always seen them as separate, but I, I like the, your notion there that they're interchangeable, that they're they're tricksters, you know, that the the women, these two women yeah. at least, are, are tr- tricksters and therefore interchangeable. In the original, um, once the Green Knight, you know, explains everything to Gawain, he says, come on back to the castle and have a visit. And Gawain has this little bit of a misogynistic tirade about how women have traditionally, you know, tricked men, give mm-hmm. some biblical examples, and then like, no, I'm not going back there. <laughs> I'm going right. home. You know, this is a story about a knight being tested. I think, mm-hmm. you know, you could kind of reduce it to that if you were going to be simplistic about it. And I think that historically women, especially women with power, bring a sort of a moral test to these heroic men mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And of course, I, I do think that there's some kind of misogyny behind that. Mm-hmm. I, I I also think that there's something a little bit unsavory about the idea that it these women really don't have separate identities right. they kind of all represent this this testing of of the man it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. whether it's this woman or that woman they're basically all the same woman yeah. and we see this in a lot of films it's, it's not just it's not just in the medieval period but um right i'm wondering if that's sort of how knights in general have to prove their worth yeah, the uh, knightly exploits often involve, you know, uh, women, women who will who will sometimes guide the knight, sometimes um, trick the knight. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but they're always kind of, you know, secondary to the to the action. So they're sometimes steering it along, um, but they're always, you know, they're always secondary to whatever is going mm-hmm. on. With Gawain's mother, I just can't figure out her motive, you know. Um, Traditionally, if she's Morgan Le Fay, um, uh, which she, I don't think should be because she, that would be Gawain's aunt, uh, Morgan has traditionally hated Guinevere and, you know, wanted her, wanted, you know, the throne for herself or whoever right. her lover is. Um, if it's Morgal's, Gawain's mother, um, I just can't figure out the motives because to me, it, this is a test that Gawain cannot pass. Hmm. When I was thinking about this uh, mm-hmm. today, I thought... Is this more simple? Is it more like this this man boy needs to be pushed from his nest? Yeah. <laughs> could it be like the the typical yeah. it could it just be like that typical parental urge mm-hmm. to be like if I just push this guy a little bit, he's yeah. going to prove his worth. He just needs an opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that he I think I need to help him along. I don't think he's yeah. going to do it on his own. Yeah. Though I would say she miscalculates because she tells him, you know, keep the sash and you can come back with your head held high. But the problem is if he keeps the sash, Uh he can't come back with his head held high. Right. Because it'll be, you know, it'll be this, you know, this act of um, cowardice or or loss of faith that he's putting his trust in this sash. Yeah, but I think that even like if the original ambiguity is sort of Mm -hmm. maintained... Yeah, there is a question of like whether it actually whether actually the 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 use of the sash was shameful at all, because the other knights of the kingdom don't necessarily they don't see it that way. They don't see it that way. Mm -mm. It's it's it it is an interesting (laughs) question. It's kind Mm -hmm. of a curiosity. I I will go one to one of Joshua's questions. He asks, um, the magical sash is also in the poem. Are there any other texts from this time period that have a magical property similar to this item? How often was magic or fantastical elements used in writings from this era? Yeah, so um, magic was a really important element of of romance and and romance-related genres as well. So these kinds of magical tokens are um, not unusual um, at all. One that I've uh, I've been 
teaching recently, so it's fresh in my mind, is um, Mallory's Tale of Sir Gareth. And in it, Gareth's beloved, her name is Leoness, and she gives him a magical ring that she tells him will ensure that he, he won't lose blood in battle. Oh. <laughs> but then she tells him, but I need it back. This, this struck my students and me as so funny. She says, I need it back because it enhances my beauty. It's like an Instagram uh, <laughs> filter or something. <laughs> so you can use it, but then I need it back. <laughs> but um, yeah. either, you know, items of clothing, you know, r magical cups, these, these kinds of tokens uh -huh. are uh, are very common in the world of romance right magical swords <laughs> magical you know. swords yeah. yeah 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 so this this particular sash is supposed to have the property of you know protecting protecting mm -hmm. him and uh I, I guess notably keeping his head on his shoulders yeah right um he loses it he gets it back and then he has to decide whether he wants to use it at all and i wonder if it, it's just it's just unclear to me what the sash was meant to do because he clearly doesn't believe it's going to save him right yeah in in the movie at least he's flinching he's running he can't do it and he comes back you know he ends up coming back and he ends up you know saying i'm ready but then he throws the sash away mm-hmm and so it's almost like he doesn't have faith in the sash at all. Uh, it's just about whether he keeps it or not. That is the test. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and and he's really in a dilemma in the in the original because the when the lady gives him the sash, she tells him it's a pearl for your plight that the sash mm -hmm. will will um, protect you. But then she says clearly, "Don't tell my husband." <laughs> you do, keep it hidden and so really uh that that's a bind because he's he's you, he's you know you've got to keep your word to a lady but you also he owes the lord of the castle fealty you know who, yeah. um, so he's in a bind there that he can't reveal the sash and he can't you know he can't he can't win there either i have all right so i was one of joshua's questions about what's real and what's not in this mm -hmm. story all right, so I, as I was watching this story, I, I wrote down what I counted as six major illusions. Okay. All right, not not illusions, but you know, mm -hmm. you know, the, the visionary part of this film. So, it's so dreamlike, isn't it? <laughs> if you were, yeah, if you're listening to this and you're kind of you like surreal movies, this is this is this really leans into the surreal. This one. Yes, it does. Okay, so for me, the first illusion is that opening scene with the night burning, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I know what to do with that. I think I think what that's telling me is that this is not about Arthur, and it's not a, about a previous iteration of the story. This is a new story, mm -hmm. right? Um, the second is Gowan is waylaid by these bandits. Mm -hmm. and he's tied up and the sash is stolen and his horse is stolen and you kind of see the camera pan around yeah. and you see an image of his skeleton as if he's died in the woods mm -hmm. yeah. long yeah. ago right <laughs> and then of course he's up you know he, he's up and cutting his ropes, ropes and he's off you know he's off to the next thing so that, I think that that's the first illusion, and it kind of reminds us, I think, that not everything on the screen is really happening. Right, yes. In a yes. literal <laughs> sense. The next one, and I, the, this is the third illusion, is that the Green Knight, oh, we're, oh, the uh, St. Winifred. Mm-hmm. She's the ghost who lost her head. Yeah. And she says the Green Knight is someone you know. So I'm wondering if we could just pause here and talk about these illusions before I go to the other ones. Yeah, especially this the Saint Winifred one. Yeah, yeah. let's talk about let's talk about like I, there's a lot of this movie that leans heavily into like something that maybe he's dreaming, maybe he's not dreaming. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Saint Winifred. So that that the 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 legend of Saint Winifred has other scholars have connected it to the to the um, to the Gawain story. Just noted similarities between the two, uh, because it is a legend that involves a beheading. Um, the story is that 
Saint or Winifred um, wanted to become a nun, and it enraged her lover or suitor Caradoc. So he decapitated her, and a, like a spring appeared where her head fell off, and it was restored by um, by one Bueno. <laughs> but there, you know, there's similarities there. We got a beheading, and apparently yeah. her head rolled around a little bit on the floor, and that happens in the original. So there's some um, some parallels there. But, um, you know, for, to put that in the film, I thought was um, a creative moment for sure. Certainly there's yeah. nothing like that in the original. Okay, so that's interesting. So it does it does have a connection in that the, there's a beheading and there, you know, there's probably mm-hmm. some of the religious themes that we, you know, been talking about already. Um, and it is something of a sojourn. Mm-hmm in the story it's almost like a little parenthetical you know short story within yeah. the story right in in the text the year you know is just kind of or the journey itself is alluded to the year mm. goes by quickly and then we're told that he confronts it says gibbering giants and sure and you know all that yeah it just gives you like a, a little a stanza where they list yeah, yeah. some of the adventures saint winifred is not one of the adventures but the film kind of draws out that section and i think it gives them it gives the filmmaker a good chance to put in these kind of uh, illusions right okay so and i also think it allows to bring a little bit more horror into mm-hmm. the story, yes. Yeah. I, 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 this, this film does lean into that direction. I think it definitely that, has that gothic feel. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and I think so. There's something about <laughs> that sojourn that brings out the horrific element of the beheading, and yeah. also the question of like what's real and what's not. I think I think mm-hmm. that that's absolutely what that story is meant to do. It is meant to have us question. The reality of Gowan's perception. Right. And he's questioning it himself because at exactly. first she, she says, I need my head. Well, you know, your head is on your neck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then she says, no, it isn't. So, right. yeah. Yes. Okay. So the, the next, this is what I'm calling the fourth illusion. And this is kind mm-hmm. of, this could sort of encapsulate a lot of, a lot of the film because it's, he falls down this hill and you can kind of, it was pretty steep, and you can almost imagine him dying at that moment. And then all of a sudden, the scene cuts to nighttime, mm-hmm. and he's grabbing mushrooms, which seem to be somewhat poisonous, right? Right, because he does throw up after eating That's them. right. Yeah. That's right. And then, you know, it's after that that he sees the giants, and it's after that mm-hmm. that he goes into the whole house. And that's the fifth illusion, is the, the lady of the house and the master of the house. It didn't really occur to me that maybe those mushrooms are hallucinogenics. <laughs> I th- yeah, that's a good for me. It's like um, that's another way to look at this movie. If you wanted to mm-hmm. read the movie in that way, you could say yeah. everything that happens after that mm-hmm. is untrustworthy in a way. Right. Um, yeah. But I I also think that there's something there's something to the fact that the Green Knight. And the master of the castle are the same person. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the film is kind of playing with that illusion because that isn't that seems to be in the original story. As it well, is right? in the original. Yeah. And I think it's less clear in the film, but um, but maybe I just didn't didn't see it drawn out. But um, but yeah, I think that's a, a fair assumption in the film. So then the question about. You know, St. Winifred basically says the Green Knight is someone you know. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's something of a warning to Gowan. And then the other thing that we ought to talk about before the illusion that he has at the Green Chapel is the fox. Yes. (laughs) Why do you stop me? I cannot tarry. Well, that way, and you do as I you will find no mercy, no in. What witchcraft is this? No witchcraft. He you seek is as wild as I, but knows no measure. I know what I face. If any man truly knew, he would bear his shame happily and turn away head and die. 
the indie song is he so fit? His secret would be safe with me. Are you this man? No. And yeah. I wonder if I could get get you to talk a little bit about this fox. Okay, yeah, a couple of things about the fox. So in the text, um, when the Lord of the Castle is out hunting, there are three days of hunting, and every day, you know, meanwhile, Gawain is having a harder and harder time fending off the Lady of the Castle, who comes on stronger and stronger. Yeah. And the hunt scenes get progressively more difficult. And the third and most difficult hunt is for a fox, and the fox in you know in um, in of legend is a trickster, a very wily character that's that's difficult to ensnare. There's Reynard the fox. The uh, the text even calls him Reynard at one point. This mm. the trickster fox of the animal fables. Um, so I thought it was a, a it was clever to insert the fox uh, and the fox. He almost serves as a guide for Gawain when he talks at the end. He he tells Gawain you can run away I won't tell anyone Mm -hmm. and in the in the text it's a it's an escort who's helping Gawain you know to the green chapel who's saying similar kinds of things to him so I thought it was a really great touch to have the you know the fox appear in that way yeah okay so the fox and there's I think that there's some connection between at one point he's looking at a tapestry or something and this may be Mm -hmm during his illusion he i think he almost sees his face on the fox yeah yeah um also the other thing about this is that when he escapes the castle that's exactly when the master of the castle lets the fox out of the bag right yeah so there's a parallel between Mm -hmm. the plight of the fox and the plight of gowan and Mm -hmm. i wonder if this is trying to tell us that gowan is something of a trickster Oh, that's interesting. I, I did not. Um, I didn't think of it that way. Um, it could be because at this point, you know, he's got the sash, right? And he. <laughs> he's we don't a know little whether, bit tricky. He's he's a little yeah. bit. This guy is like a little bit mm-hmm. like you know he's he he doesn't he's not quite forthright with the master of the house. He's able mm-hmm. to. It, this is in the text and not in the movie, but he's able to kind of like he's able to give the king what he received the gift mm-hmm. he received which was his wife's kiss right right mm-hmm. and he's able to kiss the king and kind of make a joke out of it like yeah yeah you didn't you didn't say <laughs> that i had to tell you how i got it mm-hmm. uh, you know but here's the kiss and then he gives the you know the, the king three kisses eventually mm-hmm. or whatever and it's all kind of played as a joke and i wonder if you know he's not quite honest with anyone in his life you know, initially when he comes home, he's like, I've been at mass all night. And his mom's yeah. like, yeah, I can smell you've been <laughs> drinking the sacrament or whatever. He's a little bit of a trickster. Yeah, this, I, I this would agree. Of Gowan. Yeah, that this, uh, that the, the film Gawain is a, he is a tricky character. Yeah. So I think that there's something of a parallel between the fox and the hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually, if you think about what happens to him at the end, he's both a coward Mm-hmm. And a hero at the same time. He's he's a tri- he's a tricky character. This guy. So um, I thought that was somewhat interesting. Yeah, yeah, to be sure. Okay, and then the <laughs> final illusion is, and I'll read directly from Joshua's question. He says, "When Gawain imagines running away from the Green Knight and taking over the kingdom in his latter years, he sees it all fall into disarray." Would that have been because Gowan himself knows he has no honor? Or would the disarray come from the realm knowing that he has no honor, and therefore they do not heed his leadership? Would the realm care if he fulfilled his oath to the Green Knight or not? Ah. I always felt that Gawain's struggle was internal, maybe because of the way that I read the original that you know he comes back to the court and sees the sash as a sign of shame and and i see that um transferring onto the film where you know he he throughout those images where he's imagining what his reign would be like he's got that sash tied mm. around him mm. and and it's restraining him and i don't know that um there's not really any indication about how the court or you know his followers view that mm. um i know when he when he takes the um the 
the wife, you know, when he um, abandons yeah. Essel and and she tries to remove the sash and he moves her hand away, That you know. Um, so I don't really know that we have enough information on how the court views it, but clearly for him, this is something that, that I think he ultimately decides he couldn't live with. Yeah, and I think that there's something to be said about the, the chaos in the kingdom mirrors the king's mm-hmm. dishonor. Mm-hmm. There's something about, so let's imagine him as king, but he's a king without honor. That means he doesn't deal equitably. Yeah. And you almost see the consequence of having a dishonorable king in the kingdom. And he knows it and they know it. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing kind of falls apart. I kind of like the idea of reading the film in that way. Yeah, yeah. The other part of this that I thought was fascinating was the gift-giving element of, mm-hmm. of all right so there's a lot of gifts given and received in this film and it kind of fits with the christmas theme mm-hmm. it does yeah you've got that kind of interplay well of course the sash is a gift right mm-hmm. but then the whole business of his testing in the house is part of this game between him and the master of the house like whatever you Whatever I get yeah. in the wilderness, I'll bring to you. Whatever you get in this house, you give to mm-hmm. me. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, so he brings, you know, the, 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 the master brings back, uh, you know, game. And the only thing that Gatwin has received <laughs> that he can get back is a, is a kiss. Mm-hmm. So he's true to the game in kind of a tricky way, but he's true to the game. And then this, of course, parallels the big game. Right, the the, mm-hmm. the larger bit of the story, the the entire structure of the story is that Gowan has to play this game with the Green Knight. Yeah, yeah. And that and that game is all about giving and receiving as well. It is, yeah. And it's a an odd sort of a game. Um, it's called. They keep saying, you know, Arthur, it's a game. Remember, it's a game. But in that original challenge, the Green Knight, you know, he calls it a game, but he also uses the word combat. So. It's a game, but um, yeah, there, there, there's an this isn't any normal game, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's legit consequences for this. Mm-hmm. Game. Right? Yeah, and and you know, the, with the exchange, uh, the exchange of winnings that uh, Gawain makes with the host, that too, it's a game, but it also um, is clear in the original text that that Gawain is making an, an oath. While I'm in your house, I'll follow your rule. I'll follow your laws. So it's a game, but it isn't. You know, it's not a game that one can take lightly because he's made an oath to follow through and that's why you know not returning the sash becomes you know such a shame and then there's this interesting okay so this is all kind of part of the fifth illusion but he goes back to essel he consummates with essel and she she's pregnant Mm -hmm. and then as soon as she gives birth she basically, t- he basically takes his child from her as if like, you've just given me a gift of a son. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and leaves, leaves money, leaves money in her leaves bed. And leaves money yeah. behind. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's just this tragic, I mean, at that point, yeah. you're like, is, th- does this man have no honor at all? Right? <laughs> yeah. It's a game. Mm-hmm. But uh, aside from the fact that gifts are given and received, there are, real, there are no real rules for gift giving. It's like one of these things where it's like there are such things as good gifts and bad gifts and there are inequitable gifts and maybe some gifts you shouldn't receive and maybe some gifts are not yours in the first place. It's all kind of this social contract without any rules at all. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And and you almost see that with him taking his child from her Mm -hmm. and him leaving the coin. It's like, yeah, this is me giving and receiving. And yet to us who are like watching this story it seems like the most inequitable thing that we you know that we could imagine right yeah yeah and i think we we have that foreshadowed with the scene with the scavenger early on where he, you know oh. I, i'll tell you you know i'll give you directions right. and then gawain you know generosity is a big part of the chivalric code that you know gawain doesn't reward him in any way he has to ask and then he gives him you know, an insufficient amount. And so maybe that's a lesson that Gawain just never gets right. (laughs) 
Right. It wasn't enough. And that's what, it, that's what the scavenger says. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, he's tied him up and he's got his knife to his throat and he holds out the coin and he just says, it wasn't enough. Yeah. It wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. <laughs> oh man. And, and so then you almost get the image, you know, when he takes the son, he takes the different wife, mm-hmm. he takes the throne He's got everything he ever wanted, but he took it without honor. Mm-hmm. And so it's never, you know, he's not, he's, he's desperately unhappy during this whole thing. Right. Yeah. You know, he doesn't crack a smile. He, it, there's no joy in his life. He's got everything he ever wanted. And because of how he took it, he just, mm-hmm. he just can't enjoy it. And so then I think you realize that the movie, was playing with you once again, right? He didn't mm-hmm. actually do this. And he has, now that he's seen this vision of himself, he can make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, interestingly enough, the Green Knight kind of like makes a joke at the end. He does. Yeah. Off with your head. Little knight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's almost like a twinkle in his eye. This, mm-hmm. this, and this is how the movie ends. Yeah. So do you think, is he beheaded? This is very curious <laughs> to me. I kind of feel like with all of the ambiguities that have been introduced in this film, I think that the film wants to leave that question unanswered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, beheadings like this, they, you know, this kind of a scene this isn't the only work that had a beheading. So there are a lot of analogs to this work. And typically you can't behead your hero. So in many of these analogs, what will happen is like the hero shows up. And so the challenger will say, oh, you know, you were, you were worthy. You showed mm-hmm. up. Or sometimes the, the, um, the spell will be broken and, um, you know, the hero will, will reach out towards the challenger um, and the challenger will like die on the spot. So there, there are a number of, uh, of, word, of works like this. One is Humbo, 13th century work. Also with Gowan, he strikes off the head of the challenger. The challenger reaches for the head. Uh, Gowan, inner Gowan reaches out and grabs the challenger and the challenger dies. So typically, you know, you can't, you can't cut off your hero's head. But in this work, I'm not so sure that that isn't the only option. Yeah, I think that's an interesting it's interesting because you know the 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 premise or the conceit of the entire story is that um you cut off my head and so mm-hmm. now the equitable solution is for me to cut off your head. Yeah. But the green knight is not a normal knight. Right. And so therefore Gawain should be able to have uh, a, some kind of magical advantage one yes. could argue. <laughs> yeah, like Gawain chopped off the Green Knight's head, but the Green Knight survives. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, he says in the text, you know, that well, you know, there's no reattaching my head, you know, when he's <laughs> when he's facing the Green Knight there right. at the end. Yeah, so this is not fair. Right. You yeah. know, this was never an equitable exchange in the first place. Mm mm. Um, I think that that's, it's an interesting problem for Gowan. And I think that there's, there's a question here about like, what would the right thing to do? Mm -hmm. Uh, what, what would have the, the, the honorable thing to do as a knight? Um, you know, what would that have looked like? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, you know, the fact that he's putting his faith in the sash, at least in the original, rather than the uh, than the shield, is what he sees as the failure. But again, mm. I would argue that the court doesn't see any of that as a failure at all. That's interesting. Okay, they're so just this amazed he's me, alive. <laughs> this brings me to uh, something else that Joshua writes. He says, "Gowan seemingly passes his test at the end by giving in and allowing whatever happens to happen with the Green Knight. Would others have allowed this to satisfy the requirement of becoming a knight, or?" being seen as honorable. Now, this, of course, presupposes that he's not a knight already. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he says, uh, and of course we know that in the original text, he's already a knight, but in this yeah. film, he's not. He says, wouldn't failing the other tests along the way make uh, made him seem unreliable to the other knights? I believe that the fact of the final test is a death sentence allows those, those others to be seen on a smaller scale. 
Oh yeah, these are good questions. Um, so it's almost like he yeah. fails. He fails com repeatedly along the way, but then yeah. of course, if he if he succeeds at the very end, if he passes the final test. Mm -hmm. then no one really cares about the, the tests along the way. Yeah, and I would argue with the tests along the way, I see this portrayal of Gawain more in the tradition of Percival, who um, in, you know, especially like the early romance of Chrétien de Troyes, Percival um, sets out and he's not a knight. He's been raised away from knighthood, unlike Gawain. And so he makes a number of mistakes. He's well-intentioned. He just doesn't yeah. doesn't know the rules, um, but he's you know he has a good heart, and he you know he gradually learns the rules. And so, um, I think we have to cut this guy in a little bit of slack because he's not mm. yet a knight. Like he says, I have no story to tell, and the queen says yet. So you know <laughs> he's got to get out there. He's got to learn. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, so so he does make some mistakes. He fails in generosity. Um, he does restore Winifred's head. Uh, but doesn't he like reach out to touch her at first, and she has to say, "What are you doing?" Oh yeah, she says, "Don't don't touch me. Don't you should know me. better. You're a knight. <laughs> you should know better." <laughs> so he makes these. He does make these little mistakes um, right. along the way. But again, I give him some grace because he isn't yet a knight, and I concur completely with Joshua that at the end, the fact that he's willing to go through with this challenge that's yeah, like, yeah. that really is a death sentence does um, you know that that proves his worth. Okay, finally, is there anything that we didn't get to that you are really interested in discussing? So the last time, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen this now, I think, three times total. And the last time I was looking it over, um, I let the credits play all the way through. And at the very end, you know how sometimes there'll be a little extra clip? Yeah. Have you, have you watched it all the no. way to the well, at the very, very end, there's a little clip, and it shows, um, remember that Gawain, you know, when he marries the noble lady, they have a daughter in, the, uh -huh. in this, what I thought uh -huh. was just an illusion, but there's a scene where it shows that little girl sitting on the floor, and she takes the crown and puts it on her head. I had I did not sit through to watch. That's so, interesting. Yeah, it was just an accident that I still had it running, honestly, and then I looked up and, wait, what is that? And so that made me wonder whether the filmmaker didn't want us to believe that Gawain maybe isn't beheaded. And so he does go on to rule. I, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, maybe that it was just a, maybe it's just a cute little outtake. I don't know. Um, but I just thought that that was, that was a very curious thing. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. It, I'm going to go watch it right now. It's, it's yeah. interesting to me because of course you could read it in multiple ways, right? Mm -hmm. It could be that he, you know, he he was he was a, a man of dishonor or something, mm -hmm. and which which one of which one of these stories is the illusion? Um, of course, he could you know he could have passed the test and gone back and had had a life, a whole life, right? Yeah, yeah, of, of honor. Right? Mm -hmm. Very interesting <laughs> stuff. What Isn't a great it? movie. I, it I love really this movie. is. So do I. So I think a lot of people coming into it are, they, you know, they, it's a medieval movie and they want to see all kinds of battle scenes and it's very psychological film. Um, so I think, you know, people need to know what they're getting into, but it's so beautifully done. And I think uh, just, you know, so rich in imagery and meaning. Absolutely. It is, I think, watching the second time, I picked up a lot of themes that I didn't pick mm -hmm. up the first time. Like, I thought it was a really interesting to see the amount of... Now, when I say the word paganism, I, I mean mm -hmm. it in the, uh, the classical sense. Right, yeah. You know, sort of what, what people would think of, like, in modern iterations as, like, you know, nature worship. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, not necessarily like anti-Christian or anti-religion or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there is something in this film about the what happens indoors and what happens outdoors. Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. the, king, the king is bringing something from the wood mm -hmm. to give as his gift. And, of course, Gowan is supposed to re re reply with something he received in a house. Right. Yeah. And you almost have the the king at one point talking about the ideal house and how it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. you know, well constructed with a fire on inside. And then immediately after that, the lady of the castle talks about how green is the color yeah. of nature and life. Mm -hmm. and she says red is the color of lust and green is the color of what happens after lust. Right. 
And of course, green and red are the colors of Christmas. So yeah, think... wonderful Christmas story. And the green chapel yes. itself, when when Gawain gets to it, and even you know the scavenger says, "Well, it's sort of a chapel." It it looks more like um, probably a, 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 a burial barrow of some sort, but it's it's not a physical building. It's an out you know it's an yeah, outdoor. Yeah, but on scene. the way to it, there's there's yeah. sort of a broken Celtic cross. Mm-hmm. So you almost like yes, of course, this is a chapel, but. It's almost a chapel that nature has completely grown over, right? Yes, yeah, and that's exactly the way it's described in the uh, in the text. That's how I envision it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you you get the sense that Gowan could be pretty happy in the village, mm-hmm. and you know, with all of the the trappings and you know the 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 brothels mm-hmm. and the hedonism and all of that. Yeah. But the true test. The true test of your knighthood is going to be out in the wilderness where you're going to have to deal with magic and illusions and witchcraft Mm -hmm. and and romance in the the sexual sense. Like these Mm -hmm. are all going to be tests. And then, of course, the Green Knight himself is a a tree in this story. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a nature versus civilization story. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Well, I always enjoy talking with you, Carol. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks again to Joshua for, uh, for thinking of this. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>